Psalm 23 is probably the most, if not one of the most, beloved songs ever written. You likely have portions of it memorized, don't you? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But as familiar as that psalm is, you may not have noticed that it actually echoes the message from Ecclesiastes. That's why we use it as a funeral psalm, although it's not only a funeral psalm. It's, it's actually about life. The same life under the sun that Solomon is talking about in, in Ecclesiastes. Only the 23rd psalm looks at it from above the water, not beneath the water. Solomon pulls us down and forces us to, to look at the, the dark depths that, that are there. The psalmist in the 23rd Psalm points out God's care for us in the midst of the curse. If you know Jesus Christ, He is your shepherd who, who cares for you as, as you walk through a Genesis 3 world. He, he makes you lie down in green pastures, meaning that there are brown and barren ones. He leads you to still waters to be refreshed, meaning that there are troubled Waters that offer danger and a fretful roar. He, he restores your soul. He, he guides you, meaning that you can be depleted and you can get lost without a, without a guide. And, and probably the most obvious echo in, in the 23rd Psalm is this life that you trod, you do so in a valley with death's shadow cast over it, but, but you're safe because he is, he is with you. But listen again how, the, how this beloved psalm ends. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Life here and forever. Sound familiar? The two realities that everyone faces, the two realities that Solomon focuses our, our attention to. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity in this world, and yet God will make everything beautiful in His time. He will bring everything to judgment, including the curse, and, and because of that, as you live in this fallen world, you live with that, with that end in view. The psalmist says, My days under the sun, where the curse is operative all around me, God's goodness and His mercy, meaning His covenant love, are also there. His gifts are also there. And his commitment to bring me to the end. And as the curse pursues us, it's all around us. God will not leave us helpless. He will not leave us hopeless either. Where does the psalmist place his his final hope? Well, it's in this verse that's on your screen. What is his conclusion to the matter? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's his conclusion. And while he acknowledges the curse, he's looking toward the time when there is no curse, when he is with God. So where did Solomon learn his theology that he is teaching us in Ecclesiastes? Well, he learned it from his father, David, who was the the author of the 23rd Psalm. And yet Solomon's goal is to get you to look at the same place that David looks for hope. David calls you to look at God, who is our shepherd, and Solomon makes you stare at the shadows of life without God. And 
He says life without the Lord as your shepherd is like you trying to shepherd the, the wind. Ecclesiastes is not a pleasureless or joyless book. In fact, it's just the opposite. That's the goal. The, the goal is just the opposite of that. Solomon is going to tell you to enjoy work. It is a gift from God at, at one point in the book. But don't think by pursuing it that that's the answer to dissatisfaction in life, because it's not. Solomon is going to tell you to be wise and grow in wisdom, but, but don't think it will solve all the riddles of life or, or that you'll rise above frustration if you get smart enough, because you, you won't. In fact, the more knowledge that you have, the more grief that comes along with it. He'll tell us today. Solomon will tell you food and drink and relationships are to be enjoyed. But don't think pleasure in any of these things will take away the longing in your heart for ultimate pleasure. That can only be found in Christ. And that longing is part of the, the curse. You'll have that until the day you see his, see his face. You see, Solomon knows before we will cast our eyes to God, we, he has to show us that we are looking at the wrong things. We're tempted to look at the wrong things for, for satisfaction. And he does that by making us take an unvarnished look at, at a fallen world, at life in a Genesis 3 world. And you say, I don't need Solomon to tell me that life is full of frustration and futility. I feel it. I've, I've lived it. And that's probably true. The live long enough, you'll feel futility, you'll feel frustration. But what you may not have considered is why that is, or what to do about it. And those are the answers found in Ecclesiastes. Solomon's goal is to loosen your grip on this sin-cursed world by opening your eyes to what life here is really like. And also to teach you how to live wisely with joy in this world as you, as you long for the, for the next. He wants to teach you nothing matters without God and everything matters with Him. Blessings are not blessings without God, are they? But with God, everything is His, is His gift. Even difficulty is a gift from the Lord. Ecclesiastes shows us that through through the extremes. I don't know if you've ever seen, um, I don't know that it's an art form, but if you've seen pictures where the background of the picture is like in gray tones, and yet what they want to highlight in the picture is in bold color, like a, like a New York skyline that's, that's, all, that's all gray, and then there's a yellow taxi cab right in the, right in the, the, the middle of it. And that's what Ecclesiastes does. It shows you life in earth tones. They're gray because of the curse. They're not black because they're still the image of God and, and God is, is common grace is still poured out, but, but life alone can be gray. But then in the midst of that, Solomon highlights the bold color of what God has given us to, to enjoy. Let's look at what Solomon is going to teach us to today in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Beginning in verse 12. Michael read for us verse 12 through to 11. This, this section actually goes all the way through the end of chapter 2, but we're only going to cover the first part of it today. Last time, 
Solomon set the stage for the entire book in verses 1 and 2. Look at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. After he says the words of the, the preacher, the Koaleth, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, here's his thesis, here's his proposition to the sermon that he's going to preach. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is, is vanity. That's the proposition of his sermon or the thesis of the book. It tells us who is writing and, and what he is going to say. Looking for meaning, significance, or satisfaction in life without God is like trying to catch the wind or catch the steam off of your, off of your breath. And Solomon says, good luck. You're, you're just going to get very tired and you're going to have nothing to show in the, in the end because you can't catch the wind. Then he states the proposition, after he states that, Solomon sets out to prove it. And in verses 3 through 11 that we looked at last time, it's a thumbnail sketch of, of what he found. It's in every area of human life he finds vanity. He finds the curse is operative, and that's why it can't bring fulfillment. He finds futility and frustration. Futility means there's no coherent plan, there's no purpose without God, and that's what Solomon finds everywhere Everywhere he looks, and that's accompanied with frustration. Whether it's work or education and or wisdom, success, pleasure, whatever it is, Solomon says he finds no answer for the curse. There's no solution. He finds just the opposite. He finds more futility. And then the rest of the book, verses 12 on, is Solomon's proof of, of the executive summary, but... Proof by exploration. It's his personal experience that, that this verdict is, is true. And it's your personal experience, too, if, if you've actually examined it, which is why you really feel like Solomon is living inside of your head whenever you, whenever you read the book. He examines it for us. He examines life for us by, by turning it over and over in his hands, one commentator said, so that we'll see it from every angle. He forces us to admit that it's empty and that it's futile. It's, the conclusion is it's, it's not worth living unless there's something more. You know, there is more. Life itself is unable to give us the key, but there is a locksmith who made the lock. And he invites you to trust him to open the door. So, you want to look at the the major outline of what we're covering, verses 1 and 2, his thesis, verses 3 through 11, his executive summary where Solomon gives proof to his statement, verses 12 through 18 is the introduction of his methodology. What's his plan? What's his strategy to prove this? That's what we'll look at today. And then chapter 2, 1 through 26 actually details his search. And we'll look at part of that this morning. That's where we're going today, Solomon's search for, for meaning. He gave us six evidences that life under the sun is filled with frustration and futility, and now he lets us in on his plan to prove it, and then he enacts the plan so we can see for ourselves. Life is temporary, it's weary, it's uncertain, it's dissatisfying, it's repetitious, and it forgets you whenever you're dead. Now he says, you don't believe me? I'll show you. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. 
And I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be inflicted with. Here is one of the places that the liberals say this is proof that Solomon was not the author because it says he, I have been king, like, like past tense, but it's a perfect. So Solomon is the author and he, he remains king. It's, this is more proof that Solomon is the author. He's just older whenever he, when he writes it. And so Solomon sets himself to pursue the answer. He says, I will seek, I will set my mind, I will explore. Three words there, seek, study, explore. It, it means he, he, he sets out on a sincere quest uh, with an earnest heart to not just, not just a, a vain show, not just an outward appearance. He, he covers the search deep and, and wide. And, and with that enthusiasm, he says, I will seek, I will explore all that has been done under heaven, which is another way of saying... Life under the sun, whatever is under heaven, not in heaven, it's under heaven, it's life under the sun. And he outlines two parts to his, to his quest. There's Solomon's strategy described in verses 12 through 18, and then Solomon's search is, is implemented in chapter 2, verses 1 through, through 26. His strategy, he describes it. And then he sets out on his search. He implements the search. And he, he starts with his, with his strategy. Solomon's strategy is described in verses 12 through, through 18. It's a natural break. If you have a study Bible, it will show you that, that, that there's, a, there's a beginning in verse 12 and there's an end in verse, verse 18 because it's a section Solomon says in, in verses 12 through 18, two things frustrate him in a Genesis 3 world, and that is neither activity nor intellect get him anywhere. That's what he says. And that's his strategy to discover meaning. And, and in the end, it will prove his thesis that everything is vanity and vexation without God. Both are dead in streets without, without the Lord. And so when Solomon looked at life under the sun in a cursed world, he concludes that neither work nor wisdom get me anywhere. Solomon says his method to search for life's meaning is a, is a two-pronged approach. He'll explore activity and academia. He'll explore work and wisdom, activity and intellect, doing and thinking. He's going to set out on a search through through the avenues of the body and also the avenues of the, of the mind. Does that sound familiar? Everywhere you look, people are doing the same thing. You're probably doing the same thing if you don't know Christ. Everywhere you look, there's philosophers. There are philosophers, there are self-help gurus, there are life coaches now. They're telling you, follow my wisdom or follow my method and you'll have a happy life my way to positive thinking, my way of working to, to do less and accomplish more. Have peace of mind, meaningful relationships, lots of money, and look good all at the same time for the small price of twenty nine ninety five a month, right? And if you look at your life, you're probably geared toward one of these two approaches. 
without the Bible, without the Spirit of God, without God guiding you, pointing you to where real meaning is, you've probably went down one of these two roads. You're likely a doer or, or a thinker. When you try to figure out life, you'll use one of those methods to find meaning. You, you'll look for the answer in work or activity. Or you'll look for the answer in understanding or insight. And if your thing is activity, then you're the person who sits there during a meeting and says, yeah, yeah, but what are we going to do about it? Is that your inclination? You attack life with the same gusto. You go on this search with the same gusto. My friend Joel James says, you're the person that thinks that unless you've been double booked at least twice today, you're not really doing much. You like serving with your hands during church events, not really considering what the purpose of them are, why have them. You you like mowing the grass because you feel good when you see progress of the freshly mowed lines, and then you probably mow it before it needs it, just for extra measure. You work extra hours, extra days. It's not really about extra pay. You just like the sense of the purpose that that it gives you. You are Martha not Mary. You're a busy bee, an eager beaver. You're a rabbit in Winnie the Pooh. You're a workaholic and someone who finds it hard to be still and listen to God or read His Word. The rest of you believe your mind will lead you to the answer. (laughs) And because of that, you're clearly superior to the activity junkies. You look for meaning and understanding. If I could just figure this out, then I will find meaning. You're the person who thinks that if you can just grasp what God is doing, then it will be all right. And if you can't, you're you're frustrated. You find satisfaction in reading a new book on, on any topic. You find solace in considering a new thought that you haven't had before. You, you likely think that education or academics are the, are the solution to life's problems. You are the wise owl, <laughs> the inquisitive deer. But you're also likely a procrastinator. And when you have the plain answer, you look for another one instead of obeying the one that you figured out or that God's given you. Solomon says, I've tried both of these approaches, work and wisdom. And without God, neither of them will will lead you to meaning or satisfaction. In verses 13 and 14, Hebrew words for work or activity are used at least four times. Twice in verse 13 and twice in verse 14. In verses 16 through 18... Solomon uses the words related to thinking or intellect at least 12 times. In verse 16, wisdom, mind, wisdom, knowledge. In verse 17, wisdom, madness, folly. In verse 18, wisdom and knowledge. Solomon is saying, I've walked both of these paths and he didn't find meaning in either one of them. They left him with no answers. And he starts and says, work doesn't solve the problem. Look at verse 13. I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. And it's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. It's a grievous task. He says work doesn't solve the the, the problem. 
He says the search is a grievous task that's been given by God. He's not saying searching in itself is bad. He says it feels grievous because when you go down that path, you, you, you can't find the solution. And that's been appointed by God. No one can escape the, the questions that eventually come to mankind living in a fallen world. They're, they're inescapable. You're going to see evil and you're going to wonder where that comes from. You will see labor and it will not produce what, what you hoped. You, you'll love someone and they will die. You can't escape it and you're, you're compelled to ask these, these questions. And that is part of God's grace that I'll show you next next week in verses 24 and 26. But right now, Solomon says, we search and we search and we never arrive, and because of that, it, it, it feels grievous. And, and you felt that, right? That nagging feeling that just when you, when you think you found something or someone to make you happy, it, you're not, it doesn't last. There's always an end to the football game when your ten, uh, team wins. There's always a Monday morning. I can remember telling my, my drinking buddies whenever I got saved that, that I'd given my life to Christ, and I remember what they said. They said, ah, you, you just found religion. It's, it's sometime in the fall. I was saved in September, and when winter is over and, and summer comes, you'll be back on the booze trail with the, with the boys. Temporary. I said, no. No, I won't. I found something that never ends. I found the one who satisfies all of my, my longings. Have you? Have you found the one that can make you whole? <laughs> Listen, the one who made you knows how to fix you. But to do that, he needs to forgive you. And you have to come and ask him for that. All of the answers to all of life's problems are there. They're with God, yet they're on the other side of a wall, Jay Adams said. You can't get to them because of your sin. But God has put a door in that wall, and that door is Jesus Christ. And Solomon says the answer is not in activity, in any activity in this world. Look at verse 14. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon does here what he will do through the entire book. He gives the conclusion before you read the research. I like that. You know, I like reading all the research. Just give me the conclusion and then prove to me that it's true. So Solomon does. I have observed, I've observed all the works, he says. And behold, they're, they're like chasing the wind. And even if you could catch it, you can't make it straight. You can't straighten out its, its twists. Look at verse 15. He says it's like vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. This is part of what he observes, which brings him to his conclusion that there's futility and frustration in life. There, there are warps, and there are boards. What do you do whenever you want to go buy a piece of lumber at Lowe's or wherever it is, and you want to buy two-by-fours. You don't just go get any two-by-four because you know that some of them are crooked. So you hold them and you, and you look down. There's nothing more frustrating than, than nailing up a two-by-four in a stud wall and realizing it's, it, it's bent like, like this. And Solomon says that life is bent. You can't straighten it. You can't straighten what is crooked no matter how much effort you put forth because there's a curse. 
And you can't even figure out what needs to be straightened because there are gaps in life. You're, you're limited. Your effort will not straighten out certain things in life and you don't even know what to do with the crook because, because you're limited. You who are work and activity driven, doesn't some of the, some of your greatest frustration come when you can't fix certain things no matter how much effort you put forth? Does it, isn't that frustrating? And if you try without God, you're, you're gonna end up being an exhausted person still holding a crooked tube before. What you're gonna do? Solomon gives us a valuable, invaluable key to life here. He shows you the proper approach to it. One of the, one of the purposes of Ecclesiastes is to give you a lens through which to view, view life, to interpret it rightly. And he says you have to start with Genesis 3. Life is already crooked and it won't be straightened this side of, of heaven. And if you don't start there, you're going to be disillusioned. If you think it's straight or it can be made straight, human beings are a blank slate. If you just give them enough education or enough money or enough whatever, then it will fix their problems. If you start there, in the end, you're going to just chase your tail. It's going to seem hopeless. You're going to conclude there's no meaning. But if you understand Ecclesiastes as a commentary on the curse, it shows you what life really is. It brings everything into focus. And it'll give you hope because it'll point you where to find joy. And it'll give you a hopeful longing for the next one. But Solomon also says, wisdom doesn't solve the problem either. All right, we're done with the workers. Let's look at the, let's look at the wise. Solomon also says wisdom doesn't solve the problem because an increase of wisdom only helps you see the curse in an even clearer way. Look at verse 16. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased in wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. And because... He says, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I, I engaged in this search. I realized that this also is striving after the wind. Why? Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. What does wisdom without God give you? What does intellect without God give you? Gives you? You don't find the light without God. You just see the dark better. <laughs> Solomon uses the same approach, this time using wisdom. He's wiser, he's richer, he's better than any before him, and he's wiser than, than you. He's saying his conclusion is definitive because he's the wisest man that ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the richest one as well. And he went down all of these paths and he found in the end it's vanity. Maybe the reason that you won't come to Christ is because you think that, that you haven't explored that one more thing that's going to be the, the answer. Or maybe you're still on that path right now and you haven't, you haven't realized that it's, that, that it's failed you yet. Solomon says, let me let, let me let you in on a little secret. It will. Everything will fail you. There's only one thing that won't. There's only one person that won't, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In verse 17, he says, I set my mind to know and I realize that this also is striving after the wind. Why? Why is knowledge not the answer to the meaning of life? Well, he answers that in verse 18. Because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. You heard the statement, ignorance is bliss? It's not. You can be ignorant and you stand before God and you say, I didn't know. And God will say, you knew enough and... You're judged. Ignorance is not bliss. But Solomon says the more you understand, the more grief it actually brings. Now, is Solomon anti-wisdom, anti-intellectual? No, he's the wisest man ever lived. He gave us Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. He gave us this book to be studied. It's a literary masterpiece. So Solomon is not saying, you know, you don't need to go to cemetery, just be, you know, just be dumb. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that knowledge is not the ultimate answer. The more you know, the more intellect you have to study life. Life. The more ability you will find, you will have to find the fall. In all of its intricacies. In everything in life. You'll just be smarter and wiser to conclude that there's vanity. If you have wisdom apart from God. And that surely doesn't lead to meaning or fulfillment. My grandfather called them educated idiots. Plenty of those in the world, right? And so after laying his strategy, Solomon now institutes his, his search. His search is instituted. He starts with activity, starts with work. We're going to see the ac- academia or wisdom next week. But his search is implemented in chapter 2, verse 1. And he starts with, with pleasure. Here's the activity of, of pleasure. Look at what he says in verse, in verse 2. I'm sorry, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said to myself, that indicates a decision. You ever talk to yourself? Solomon did. <laughs> Solomon will explore both work and wisdom, activity and academia, but he starts with the activity side of things. And he's going to explore activity in pleasure, and then he's going to explore activity in personal success. In verses 1 through 3 is, is the pleasure part. Did it work? Well, he tells you right up front in verse 1, no. Behold, it too is futility. He gives us the conclusion up front, but, but then he... But then he proves it. Surely, pleasure will bring satisfaction, won't it? Verse 3. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine, and while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly, until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven with a few years of their, their lives. Solomon said he studied the science of merrymaking. And he used his mind to maximize it. Look at what he says here. In verse 3, I explored with my mind. Whenever you see heart in some of your translations, that's, that, that's the mind. That's the, the seat of intellect. I said, in my, in my, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my, my body. 
with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. He actually uses his brain to, to figure out whether, whether partying, whether, whether merrymaking, doing that to the nth degree will actually bring, will bring satisfaction. He studied fun and he investigated partying. That's what the Hebrew word for, for laughter or mirth. It, it means to, means to have pleasure. And Solomon explored how to do it in a way that brought maximum pleasure. There are people that make a life of that, right? He said, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body. The idea is he experienced with merrymaking and wine, he experimented with it to determine the exact amount it took to, to keep him in a happy state. Not drunk because then you're out of control, that's not very fun, but to be buzzed, as they, as they say, just the right amount. And Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived, so if anybody could figure this out, it would be, it would be Solomon. One commentator said Solomon had the grandest party of all time, and it was scientifically modulated to bring maximum pleasure. Surely, if life was one big party, then you would find happiness, Right? Always laughing, always with friends, where the wine flows and the Colorado State flower never runs out. That will bring happiness, right? No pressures, only fun. And you may have tried it. And my shame, I did. And you already know the answer. Solomon says it's maddening. Look at verse 2. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? That's what he concludes. Too much of anything, even good things, can become annoying. You ever tried a really long vacation? What happens toward the end of it? tell you what happens toward the end of mine. I can't wait to get back and get back to work and do what I do. You start feeling the itch. Man, the first day that you get to the beach, it's awesome. The second day, it's, it's great, maybe even better, because now you get settled in. The third day, it's good. And the fourth day, it's good. And the fifth day, it's good. And, and if you really, really like the beach, maybe the tenth day, it's good. But then at some point along the, the way, it, it starts to be to lose its luster. Three days at Disney is great, but what if I offered you a 60-day pass and you had to go every single day? How would you feel about day 35? You'd feel like Solomon. You'd be saying, shoot that mouse. <laughs> it's maddening, is what he says. You see, you're created to be satisfied. But the curse has removed your ability to be satisfied in anything other than God. <laughs> and pleasure can bring some enjoyment in life, but it's only for a season. And you'll never find meaning there. Solomon says pleasure doesn't work. So he says, I'll try personal success. View it at verse 4. I enlarged my works. 
I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted them with all kinds. I made ponds and male and female servants and homeward. I possessed flocks and herds, which was the status for wealth in those days. I had more money than everyone who preceded me in Jerusalem. And I even gathered silver and gold, treasures from the kings of the of the east. And he even had concubines. You know what that is. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Activity and personal success. That's where Solomon looks next. That's where most of our culture lives. Maybe even you. Solomon now pursues the secular American dream before Wall Street was ever thought of. We don't have time to go into all the works that Solomon accomplished that are recorded in 1 Kings, but he was the richest man that ever lived. He accomplished what, what no one ever, ever did. Makes Warren Buffett look like a chump. Solomon says, Jeff Bezos, who's that? He's a mere child compared to Solomon. Solomon looks for, for meaning in lavish leisure, unrivaled wealth, limitless amusement, unparalleled status, and unrestricted desires. Did you find in those verses, summary of them? And Solomon said he excelled in every one of them above every person who ever lived. Now, if you had to draw a conclusion about the meaning of life, you didn't have Ecclesiastes or Solomon. All you had were the, were the people and, and the world around you. What would you conclude brings happiness? What are people pursuing in this world today? I mean, if all you did was just look around and observe what everyone was doing, what would you say brings meaning? Well, the conclusion I think that you would draw is personal success. That's really what we see every day. Work hard, get rich. And then you'll be happy. And it's a bold-faced lie. That's what Solomon did. And he said it's not where you'll find meaning. Many people spend their lives seeking all these things, don't they? Relaxation. Can't wait to retire. Wealth. I get security if I have money in the money in the bank. I don't want to be rich. I just want to have enough in there if something breaks down. I don't have to I don't have to worry. I want peace of mind. You're in good hands with Allstate. Make sure you buy this this insurance policy. Or amusement. Stadiums are filled with, with screaming fans of trying to, to, to drown out the the gray parts of, of life. Status. I don't just want to be a Delta Silver member. I want to be a Platinum member. Self-fulfillment? A look inside? Are they happy? If you look at the world around you, is it happy? <laughs> Are you? Are you happy? If you're not happy, it's because you've not laid hold of God or you forgot to look at Him. The more you have, the less fulfilled you are because you don't have God. And everyone knows this. Politicians know this well. Politicians either promise you unfettered access to the pursuit of success or they promise to take it from others and just give it to you. 
but they're both promising the same thing. One says smaller government, fewer regulations, so you can pursue the American dream. And the other says the American dream has been stolen from you, and I'm here to level the playing field and give you that dream. By stealing it from others, of course. (laughs) And of course, they won't give it to you. They, They just want to use it for themselves, so they can have a piece of the American dream. And Solomon says, without God, it doesn't matter whether Democrats or Republicans are ruling. If you look for meaning from them or what they promise, you will not find it. That's not to say the Bible doesn't indicate principles of governance. One's better than the other. The Bible teaches personal property rights, work hard, that's rewarded. Taking something that doesn't belong to you, that you didn't earn, is thievery. But the Bible also says thinking that you're going to find satisfaction and meaning if all those things are perfectly in line is just not the case in a fallen world. There are crooked things that can't be made straight, and that surely includes politicians, right? Personal kingdom building does not supply the meaning of life. You say, I don't know, Brian. I look around at the carefree people, and they look pretty happy. The the wealthy look pretty satisfied. Those who have health look like they can enjoy life or at least a little bit better than I do with my small bank account and my aches and my and my pains. Well, you need to hear the words of, of, of Asaph in Psalm 73 when he struggled with the same perspective. Asaph looked around and he said, But as for me, my feet have come close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked... And there were no pains in their death, and their body is fat, and he found the answer. And he draws the same conclusion that Ecclesiastes does, and that's on your screen. When I pondered to understand this, when I looked around and it looked like wickedness was prevailing, and the rich were happy, and I am not, where is the answer? I almost slipped, I almost lost hope. I pondered this, it was troublesome in my sight, and then I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. You see, looking at people right now, it's an incomplete, incomplete conclusion. You don't have all the information. And you must include God when you include the end, when judgment comes. And all those things that you're wishing you had, these are not gifts. They're curses if you don't know Christ. They're curses if you don't know Christ. They blind you and they bind you. They, they blind you to the real world that's coming and they, they bind you to this world that, that's cursed. And because of those things, these people can't see the end and what awaits them and they waste their life. Let me ask you, would you trade eternity for health right now? Would you trade the smile of God for for riches on earth? Would you trade everlasting joy for fewer aches and pains? No, you wouldn't. And you'd be smart. Because satisfaction and meaning in life is not found inside you. It's found in God. In verses 4 through 11, the personal uh, pursuit of, of success 
not the pleasure part, the personal pursuit of success, verses 4 through 11. The words I and me and my and myself are used 35 times. (laughs) You think Solomon is trying to make a point? Dwayne Garrett said it's the gospel of selfishness. When you add me and myself and I to activity in order to find meaning, it fails. The, the quest even becomes worse. But if you replace me, you take me in all those places and you replace it with God, then you're close to meaning. It's not my work, but your work. It's not my will that's going to be done. It's thy will that's going to be done. It's not my pleasure. I don't, I don't live pleasing to myself. I live pleasing to you. <laughs> it's not my kingdom that's being built. It's, it's His kingdom that's being built. And when you do that, then all of the blessings and the joys in labor come to life. You don't discover that they're meaningless. You discover everything has meaning because you're doing them all for Him. And they all come from Him. And they all go back to Him. And that's the key to fulfillment in life. Not doing less or doing more, not being fatalistic and giving up, or, or living as you only go around months once, but whatever you do, Whether you eat or drink or labor or build a business or run for office, you do it all for the glory of God. All for the fame of His name, not the fame of your own, because you will not find satisfaction or fulfillment any place in this world, no matter how hard you try. But if you turn to Jesus Christ and Him, you will find it beyond your wildest imagination. And those of you who are in here who are Christians know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Shoot by your heads.